If you have your Bibles, please open them to Amos chapter 1. Mike, I'm especially asking you to do this because I want to see something later. (laughs) All right. Amos chapter 1, verse 3. Yeah, just go ahead. I'll need it later for reference. Um, We're going to start with verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter of Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyr, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. May God bless the reading of of his word. So we're in Amos, and I've mentioned this before, but the, the prophets are hard to preach on. They're hard to preach on because there's so much... Of ourselves, I want to say, in the prophets. So much of ourselves in the Old Testament. Um, And it's with that that we continue forward. And and we're going to do it a little differently than normal. Usually I'll do verse by verse. But we're going to do it in segments so everyone can understand. Okay, this segment is for this people. This segment is for this people. And we're going to see a pattern arise. So here we go. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to cure, says the Lord. I'm going to bring up a map real quick because I want us to all understand, you know, we're used to Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Ohio. We're, we're familiar with our own surroundings. But when we read about these other nations that are being judged in the prophets, I want to get it in our minds that this is the location that we're talking about. Um, so the first one is right here, Damascus. And as you can see, it's part of Syria, and we see Beth Eden further north. Um, That's the first area that we're looking at. Now go ahead, Betsy, and go to the second map. It's a little bit closer for us. Again, Damascus is way up in the north, and you can see Gilead is right here. That's about 60 miles. That's it, from Damascus to Gilead. And so we see that's the location for this first one, is that whole section in Syria down into Gilead, clearly into Israel. Um, 
And now let's see what does, what does Amos say about all this. The first nation to fall under God's condemnation is Aram or Syria. Aram's capital was Damascus, hence Damascus being named from the outset. Further, this makes sense because Damascus would see the lands of Israel as primed to take over because of how close it was geographically. And that's what we just saw. They're very close geographically. But next we notice something in the, in the text, verse 3 in particular. Um, we have a numerical phrase that we will encounter many times in Amos, and one which might have some people wondering what Amos is saying. We notice Amos says, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, Mike, I had you open up your Bible. Does it say that, three and four? Or does it say three, three plus one? No, nope. three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, Okay. similar for all of the other judgments. Okay, so now... Some other translations will have um, three transgressions of Damascus for three and or plus one. N plus one. Um, I will not revoke the punishment. So the question most people ask is, what is it? Is it three? Is it four? Or is it seven? What are, what are the transgressions? How many are there? Um, what is it exactly? Ultimately, when we read this phrase... That has a number and then a number, another number plus one. It is meant to convey a multitude of sins. It's a figurative way of saying, for their many sins. In that sense, it is not as though there are just three sins, but a multiplicity of transgressions which they were committed. That's why when you read this text, you don't count four sins or seven sins or three sins. They're just sins. That's all it is. Um, so I just wanted to make that clear. So... We then see that Amos specifically says, because they have threshed Gilead with their threshing sledges of iron. Two things from this. The first is, threshing sledges were a board with iron spikes or glass on the bottom of it, and it was used to thresh out grain in threshing floors. Now the second is, what is Amos talking about? (laughs) Um... This is a reference to the time when the Aramaeans, Damascus, invaded Gilead, and we find that a little bit in 2 Kings 8.12. The damage inflicted on the Gileadites by the Aramaeans was so severe that it, that it is merely a metaphor. And others argue that the Aramaeans um, literally threshed the bodies of the Gileadites after their defeat. In other words, the threshing. It was so severe, the beating, that it was as though they were the chaff. These people, the Gileadads, were the ones who were being threshed in the threshing floor. That's how bad this battle was. Um, and again, some think that they actually threshed the bodies of the Gileadites, the Israelites, underneath them after they beat them. Um, now the question is, we can't know which one it is. However, we can know that it was a very severe beating for Gilead and for Israel. And because of this defeat, because of the way it was such done, God is going to judge Damascus, Aram, Syria. In order to do this, he will send fire upon the house of Hazael, or Hazael devouring the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad, that name means son of the god Hadad. 
It was a royal name similar to Pharaoh. You know how in Egypt there are many pharaohs. Pharaoh Ramsey, Pharaoh Ramsey II, Pharaoh Ramsey V. You know, there's a bunch of them. Ben-Hadad means the same thing. Ultimately, Hazael was the king who took control of Aram by assassinating the Ben-Hadad, the pharaoh, who was ruling over Aram at the time. After Hazael's death, his son re-actually took the name Ben-Hadad as the generic term for the kingship. Ultimately, the point is that God will devour the strongholds of the kings of Aram, and ultimately, the dynasty itself will fail. He will do this by fire. Fire was often understood as being used for destruction and divine wrath. In this case, it is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who will destroy these individuals for their crimes. This is further seen when we see that God himself will break the gate bar of Damascus. That is, the gate, going so far as to cut off the inhabitants of the Valley of Avon and the scepter of Beth Eden, as we remember, was really high up there. It was some 600 miles away from Israel. These places were in a coalition with Aram, and the destruction which will occur from this will destroy even the treaties, the covenants, and even those peoples. Ultimately, the people of Aram will go into exile to Kir. And Kir is actually, ironically, where the Aramaeans were first from. So these people who came down will be abolished back to their homestead um, and back to where they were because of the treatment of the Gileadites. Now this leads us into the next group, the next nation. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. I'm going to bring up another, the same map. Where are we talking about? Down here now. There's Gaza, right there. Here's Ashkelon, here's Ashdad, here's Ekron. Gath, as you notice, is inside Judah. They had already been conquered. Um, and this is the area. This is the Philistine area. And these were the five main cities of the Philistines. And so far, we have another issue with them. And we notice, too... Damascus is way up there. It cuts straight across down here. And there's a reason for that we'll find in a few weeks. So down here now, in the south, we are looking at. All right. So the next nation to be judged is Gaza of Philistia. We also see the same numerical system as Aram with three or three plus one or three plus four. Again, this is not meant to display exact numerical sins, but a multitude of sins committed. And the reason why God will not revoke the punishment, that's the question. Because they carried into exile a whole people and delivered them to Edom. The Philistines, instead of capturing those within the armies of their enemies, seems to have raided a town or a village, likely in Israel or Judah, and took the entire population captive, selling them as slaves to Edom. This kind of understanding of humans as commodities was forbidden by the law and required the death penalty. Because of this, God will send fire to the wall of Gaza, and the fire will be so great that it will destroy the strongholds 
Again, fire is used to symbolize divine wrath and destruction. Thus, the destruction from Yahweh will be so great that even the strongholds that they had built up will be destroyed. We then have more judgments against the Philistine cities of Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron. These three, along with Gaza and Gath, were the five major cities of the Philistines. It is interesting that Gath, however, is not mentioned, and it's really never mentioned in the prophets. Though most scholars believe at this point it was either under control of Judah or its neighboring city of Ashdod. So they weren't really a force. Regardless, God will do the same as it does to Gaza, to these other Philistine cities. The ultimate conclusion will be that the Philistines, as a people, will perish. We then come to the last one that we're going to look at, verse 9. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyr and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyr, and it shall devour her strongholds. All right, one more time at the map. We went up there. We came down here. Guess where we're going now? Straight up to Tyr. Right up there. You see where we're going? We're kind of making a little bit of an X, which we'll see in a few weeks again. But Tyr is part of a Phoenician, um, the Phoenician coast, and they were a heavy trading port, as we'll see. So this final judgment we look at today is against Tyr, a city on the Phoenician coast, as I just said. They were well known, even in that day, for having an impressive maritime elements, as they had ocean-going ships. Like the other nations and cities mentioned, they had many transgressions against them, as per the three plus one, or as ESV says, three and four. Again, Edom is mentioned in slave trading, and it appears that Tyr was a major slave trading port. It is possible that Edom then acted as a middleman between the Philistines and Tyr. Ultimately, Tyr grew wealthy from this kind of slave trade. Likewise, it is apparent that they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. It is likely that this covenant reflects the one made by David, Solomon, and Ahab in the books of um, Kings and Chronicles. Unfortunately, Tyr did not abide by the covenants that were made, thereby making them covenant breakers. Ultimately, the same fate will occur with Tyr as it did for the other cities. Because of their breaking of the covenant and because of their further breaking of the law of God, they shall face judgment, the divine wrath of God, which will come through fire. So the main point. The main point of this triad, so to speak, is to show that judgment will come to those who have treated the people of God in such horrific ways. In particular, we see this with the utter destruction which came from the battle of Aram against Gilead, and then when it came to slave trading, which involves the Philistines, the Edomites, and Tyr. Such slave trade especially is awful, for it literally takes the helpless and the weak to give more to the wealthy and the strong. Now, before we continue on to the application point, something I was going to mention earlier. Um, It's funny that Mike talked about Sunday school, because in Sunday school, as we're talking about holiness... Uh, one of the last points we talked about was that holiness isn't just how we feel, and it's not just how we live, but it's also how we think. 
And so when we talk about the prophets, a lot of it is going to challenge us up here. A lot of it is going to say, okay, what should we do since the prophets are saying this is wrong? How then should we act in these kind of circumstances? So it's with that that we come to the first point, which is actually fitting because Veterans Day. Warfare. The first application concerns warfare. As we recognized earlier, Gilead suffered a great defeat at the hands of Aram and Syria, or Syria. This gives us an interesting application when it comes to warfare and how war should be understood. First, let's assume that the analogy of the threshing sledges was used um, and meant to convey destruction. In this sense, it is reminiscent of another kind of warfare and battle fault that comes to mind. And this is what I thought of when I heard about this, or when I read this. Hitler and Nazi when they invaded Poland. Does anyone remember that at all, how devastating it was? It was as though Germany threshed Poland. Um, It was a complete and total defeat, crippling Poland. And not only that, uh, we'll, we'll look at that later, but one of the reasons for it was that Poland was fighting with World War I weapons. So they fought on horseback against tanks. And if you were to think of that, that wouldn't work very well. It just doesn't at all. Ultimately, we know the results of that invasion, that they literally were threshed. As Christians, when we consider warfare, we should encourage not total and utter defeat. Instead, we should seek to make sure that the enemy armies, once defeated, should still live and not be decimated. Because that's what happened here. The prophets spoke against it. However... Let's assume that the thrusting sledges was not just the destruction, which was great, but the Aramaeans, Damascus, literally threshed the bodies of the people of Gilead. Then we have an ethical response to people who have been killed or captured, that we should not mutilate their bodies or seek to give them unnecessary pain or torture. In either case, we see an ethical statement when it comes to warfare. How we treat our enemies is still important even though they are our enemies. Though they are our enemies, they are still men or women. Though we may fight against them and them against us, we should still be willing to recognize their humanity rather than make them out to be something other than human. Obviously, that will have different ramifications with different people. But personally, from my perspective, it seems a wise thing to consider the ethics of warfare. Warfare is not something we should ever look forward to, but it is sometimes necessary, as per um, the Nazis in Japan. Since it is necessary, we should remain vigilant to consider it within the Christian worldview, And as it is, Amos gives us a very clear understanding of what it means to combat others, not seeking to decimate them, but seeking to win without causing unnecessary casualties. If we do not, then we will be like the Aramaeans who just sought to destroy. In such a destruction, the enemies can become less than human. And as Christians, we should seek to be against such understanding of our enemies. So that's the first thing that came to mind from this sermon. Now the second one, social justice and slavery. Um, 
This is a theme. Social justice is a theme we will see repeatedly throughout Amos. We see social justice when we see how the Philistines, the Edomites, and Tyre were involved with slave trade. Slave trade was and is a lucrative business. However, it is forbidden in the law to have such slave trading. Consider this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Exodus 21.16. And we also read in Deuteronomy. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of, his, of the people of Israel, and he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Deuteronomy 24.7. Now, some may see slave trade as a non-issue. After all, we are well aware of the Emancipation Proclamation. However, most people in our congregations and in our churches do not realize that the slave trade is alive and well within our society and across the world. Consider these statistics from Walk Free Foundation, a foundation seeking to end modern-day slavery. First, there are, depending on how you define slavery, 20 to 40 million people enslaved in the world. Second, 68% are subjected to forced labor. Third, a third of them are children, as young as five or six years old. Fourth, over half of the victims are women and girls. Fifth, slavery generates $150 billion in illegal profits yearly. It's a lot of, lot of bad right there. Now, some may think these statistics are far from America. The truth is, America has a problem with it as well. We see that in the sex slave trade that we see going on in America. Um, recently, Betsy, you might know of this video that was made a few years ago from Wellsboro, Bible, or Wellsboro Baptist. Um, one of the youth there made a video about it, about the sex slave trade going on all across America. In fact, uh, Portland, Oregon, is one of the major trading places in America. Canton, Pennsylvania. Canton, yeah, and Canton, Pennsylvania as well. It's, it's right here. It's not that it's, we're not affected by it. It's actually in our own neighborhoods. It's actually estimated that 200,000 children, actually, in the United States are at least at risk. At risk. Doesn't mean that they're involved, but they're at risk. 200,000 that's, that's abominable. Obviously, this is just as barbaric as the previous point on warfare. When we consider humans to be less than human, then it is possible for us to see them as nothing more than commodities. This, however, is not what God intended for us. All humans bear the image of God, and therefore we all have purpose, we all have value, And none should be dealt such injustice. As Christians, we need to be the moral voice in an immoral world. It is our responsibility to confront such injustice with justice. We are the ones who must stand firm against the darkness of slave trade and sex slave trades. By being faithful to the gospel... And to do the justice of God. We can do that by being vocal about it. We can let others know and speak out against this injustice in our societies. We can inform others of the high value of human life. 
by informing them of the Christian view of humanity, which is that we are not just made from matter plus time plus chance, but that we are made in the image of God. In this way, Christ will be glorified and we will continue to show the justice of God by being his hands and feet in justice. We are not called to be silent about such things in our societies, but vocal and providing information to others so that they too can know and they can combat the darkness in the world around them. So this point on social justice is focused on treating humans as cattle. We cannot do this. It is an abominable practice to treat any human as less than human. So be strong and faithful to God by speaking out against such injustice and love others by supporting and aiding them in their knowledge of injustice and above all pray. Pray for this disease. Because, again, injustice, it's awful. So this leads us to our third point, though, and that is the justice of God. And this is the final thought I wanted to leave you with um, for this week. As we can see, God does not abide in justice. In fact, he is completely and totally just and righteous. Being just and righteous means that he must and will punish for evil done in the world. So the justice of God should cause one of two things to occur within us. Either great fear or great rejoicing. When I say fear, we must recognize that we are also guilty before God. Because of that, we remain guilty, we will be judged for all the sins we have committed. God will not let the guilty go unpunished. So it is that all humanity has a right to fear the justice of God who is so supreme in all of his ways. However, for those who are in Christ, there is no longer fear but love. We learn that in 1 John. The fear of judgment does not belong to those who are in Christ because they are redeemed through the blood of Jesus. In this way, they rejoice over the justice of God, knowing that he will not remain silent when it comes to the gross atrocities we find around us. To help us understand this, consider the following from the book of Revelation. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now this occurs right after Babylon is destroyed. How is it that those who are in heaven can rejoice over such destruction and judgment? The answer is that they can rejoice knowing that God is just in his ways. And they rejoice knowing that the judgment of God is right. So it is with all the judgments of God. They are always right They are always righteous. So this is the hope that we have. That God will be just against the unjust. We have this hope that God will bring those who are evil, who are wicked, and who refuse to repent of their sins, 
and turn toward him, he will bring those people to judgment for their sins. Though we do not know what the judgment entails, we can be sure that it will definitely come. And we rejoice knowing that evil will be put in its place once and for all. This is also why, throughout these applications, we have been considering this ethical, this moral, these factors that we should have when dealing with the above issues in society. We need to have a response to evil in the world, whether it be in warfare or in trade. As Christians, we have the awesome responsibility to portray Christ, and in doing so, informing this world of the justice of God. It is also why, if we are Christians, we can still rejoice over this last part. We have all seen evil, and we know that much evil never gets its due on earth. But we also know that God is a just God, and that whether in this life or the next, evil will face judgment. And those who coincide with evil will face judgment as well. This leads us to our final point. I know that this particular sermon doesn't seem to be the most interesting or personally practical. <laughs> um, I know it's not going to cause much emotion. It might cause sorrow, if anything. And it should cause sorrow, I think. But we also want to remember that it is important to consider all of these things and to have answers for the world when evil occurs. That's what the role of the prophet was. Um, likewise, it is important for us to be the voices of righteousness in this world. In doing so, we are obedient to God, who is completely just and righteous in himself. Likewise, in all of this discussion on righteousness, justice, morality, ethics, whatever you have it, whatever you want to call it, we find the gospel, which shows us how we can be redeemed while God remains so incredibly just. And this gospel begins with our origins. We are created in the image of God. Because God is a God of reason, love, he knows, can be known, has personhood, displays hesed, his, his, um, his covenantal ties, so too are we, though we are finite and he is infinite. It is within this reality of who we are identified with and as that, we can find the basis for human dignity. We are not zero. Likewise, we find the necessity of the sanctity of human life. All human life is sacred because we are all created in the same image of God. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could either choose God and life or sin and death. Our ancestors, we know the story, they chose the latter. And all of us, ever since, have chosen the same. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world, they're broken. And we see that. It is because of this we are able to have such beautiful dreams and aspirations. And have such horrible nightmares. And so much evil. Because of our sin, we accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. And it's not just a feeling of guilt but true guilt before a guilty or before a judge. So this is our dilemma. We are lost in the darkness of our sin. We do not know ourselves and we do not know our God. 
Therefore, we are unable to get ourselves out of the darkness on our own. God could have left us in this state for all eternity, but instead he decided to send a word and a light into the world. This word, this light, was his son, Jesus Christ. He came in time, space, history, and flesh to live, die, and rise again in glory. It is through his life, death, and resurrection which we are redeemed from our sins. He bore the punishment of our guilt so that we could be justified by our almighty God. It is through his blood we have been redeemed. We find redemption. In this we find justice satisfied. And through him we have life when we deserved death. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are not to live in whatever way we want. Instead, we are to turn away from our sinful lifestyles and live in step with the Spirit according to the Word of God. We live not for ourselves. As Mike said earlier, it's not our time, is it? It's not our time. But for the glory of God, which is revealed through the Scriptures and further through His Son, Jesus Christ. The second is obedience and faith in Christ. We need to recognize our total dependence upon Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we could never attain the glory of God. It is only by Christ we are saved from our sins and from our guilt which is worthy of judgment. It is the work of Christ alone which brings us to salvation. It is faith alone, grace alone, and faith alone, in Christ alone according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone that we are saved. For those who are disobedient in these things, there is only judgment. If we stand before judge, a judge guilty, then there is only condemnation for our guilt. Our sins are not washed, washed white as snow, and God will sentence us according to the sins we have committed. For those who are obedient, though, there is peace with God. We find not death, but life. We become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom, where we will reign in the glory with our God forever. It is not what we have done which allows us to happen, but by grace in Christ. And because of that, we will experience the love of God forever. My encouragement to you is that as we consider the prophet Amos... And we remember that Amos is speaking to societies. That we would think about that. And that we too would speak to our own societies. He is being used by God to call out the evil within these societies. We too should be like Amos. And find courage to do the same. All the while remembering and knowing just what all the prophets knew. That God is just. And by him we live. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophets who spoke your word. And Lord, we thank you that we can come together and we can consider all the hard things that the prophets teach. That we can see the ills in our own societies. And maybe we can have a response to them. Lord, we need your guidance. We need your righteousness. We need to be a voice for you, for your glory, for your righteousness, and your justice. This world would destroy itself 
should we fail. And so, Lord, it is by your grace that we move forward. It is by you and your love that we rise up and we stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says no more to this world, which says no more to the way it thinks, to the way it lives, to the way it feels. We rise up and we say, with God I stand, by his grace. And so we stand on this grace forever, Lord, and we ask you to continue to show it to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we continue to pray. Amen.